Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Elena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in the Yale Astronomy Department, where I study planetary system dynamics. I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study transients and the galaxies they come from. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. You're listening to Episode 31, Hypervelocity Heavens. In astrophysics, a lot of the phenomena that we observe are relatively steady state. That is, we frequently observe stars on the main sequence, where they remain for billions of years, or we observe planets on stable orbits that they'll remain on for millions if not billions of years. Not so in this episode. Today we'll be talking about some objects that are moving far more quickly than is typical for other similar objects, earning them the title of being hypervelocity objects. As you might imagine, we need to be in the right place at the right time to see these objects. They'll often be moving so quickly that they're above the escape velocity from the system in which they reside. Will and Alex are going to tell us about a couple of specific studies of these objects and what they can teach us. But before that, I'd like to start off with a few introductory questions to give us the context we'll need to understand those results. Sounds good. Let's do it. So to start us off, could either of you begin with just the definition of a hypervelocity object? That's a good question, but I don't have an easy answer because it turns out the exact definition differs between subfields. Generally, hypervelocity is a term given to objects that are observed with substantially higher velocities than the majority of the population for that object. Take all objects in unbound orbits, for example. If they're unbound, they could be considered hypervelocity, but you could also have a hypervelocity object that is bound. In impact studies, for example, the term hypervelocity refers to a collision with a relative velocity exceeding the speed of sound in a solid, around 4 to 5 kilometers per second. Whereas for stars, the threshold could be two orders of magnitude higher at around 500 kilometers per second, so it really depends on what object you're looking at. So it sounds like there are a lot of different kinds of hypervelocity objects, but how do they obtain their high velocities? Well, it's actually a good thing we spent much of last episode talking about supermassive black holes. So let's get back into that for a sec. The astrobite I brought last time was about tidal disruption events, which happens when a star passes so close to a black hole that the tidal forces rip the star apart violently. Tidal forces are the difference in gravity on the nearby side of an object versus the far side of an object, which on Earth, from the moon, causes our tides, the difference from the near side versus the far side. It's what causes spaghettification when you're falling into a black hole. And wouldn't be any fun at all. <laughs> Neither is a tidal disruption event for a star that's just trying to, you know, do some fusion. Suddenly it gets <laughs> destroyed and becomes part of the black hole's accretion disk. But if the star passes close to a black hole, but not that close that it gets ripped apart, the star can get a gravitational acceleration from the black hole. It gets whipped around and gets shot out as a hypervelocity star. And this is, in fact, the same setup as a spacecraft using a gravitational assist of a planet to pick up speed. 
So NASA does this all the time when we send spacecraft out to the outer solar system. Oftentimes we have a, do a flyby of a planet to pick up speed, save energy, and get there faster. But we also do this to get to the inner solar system, say the Parker Solar Probe. It's done a flyby, multiple flybys of Venus to actually lose speed. So it's sort of a gravitational assist in reverse. Right. So that also means that, for example, the hypervelocity impacts would also probably have to do with these assists in gravity from neighboring planets in the solar system, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. You could get a hypervelocity due to that, and say the Voyager 1 probe would be hypervelocity. It's exceeded the escape velocity of our solar system using multiple gravitational assists, and it's going to keep traveling. Yeah, from what I could find from digging around on this topic, it seems like the thinking is that the majority of hypervelocity stars get accelerated to those velocities by something that's called the Hills Mechanism. And that's what happens when a binary stellar system passes very close to a supermassive black hole. One of the stars falls into the black hole and the other one gets slingshotted out, as Will said. Exactly. That's the catch. You, you can't do it alone. One star going close to one black hole is right. not enough. It actually needs to be at least a binary star. And then usually what happens is, as the kids would say, the star gets yeeted out of the galaxy. <laughs> is that what the kids are saying? Well, as, as the kids' parents might say, the star gets hucked out of the solar system. For those of you who have some older slang in your vocabulary. I just want to end on the point that this is not the only mechanism that can cause an object to become hypervelocity. So I also found that stars in a binary could become hypervelocity if their companion goes supernova and explodes them out of the system. Oh, and in addition, there was a neutron star in 2007 that was measured at traveling around half the speed of light, 50% wow. the speed of light. And astronomers think that it reached those high velocities from an asymmetric explosion from the progenitor star that sent this single object shooting off in one direction. Asymmetric wow. explosion. That doesn't seem like it would happen very often. I'm not sure how asymmetric you have to get to cause accelerations to up to half of the speed of light. Yeah, I was going to say, did like half of it explode and the other half was just hanging there? Right. No, I have no <laughs> idea. Yeah, it's a great question. I want to know how those modeling papers work. Huh. It sounds like there are a lot of different ways that you can get these objects at really high velocities in the galaxy. So once these objects actually reach hypervelocity speeds, how long would it take for them to leave the galaxy? Just to get a sense for, you know, how long would we have to observe these objects before they're actually just gone and we can't see right. them anymore? Yeah, of course, it depends on where you start from and how fast you're moving in the galaxy. But to get kind of a rough upper limit, we could assume that you're leaving the Milky Way from its center if you have an interaction with a supermassive black hole. And if you're traveling right at the escape velocity of around 550 kilometers per second, then the highest radius estimated for the Milky Way is around 100,000 light years, which would take you 50 million years to traverse. Hmm. And the first hypervelocity star discovered in 2005 was estimated to have taken less than 80 million years to travel from the center to the halo. So it turns out that estimate is not that far off from our measurements, but Stars have also been found moving as fast as 1,700 kilometers per second in the Milky Way. And at wow. that speed, a star can go from the middle of the galaxy upward and pass the majority of Milky Way stars after it's traveled only around 1,000 light years in distance, which would only take around 150,000 years for the star. Whoa. So a very large range in, uh, in time estimates there. Right. So you wouldn't expect to see many of those objects at all unless they were being created pretty often, right? 
That's a good question, but you're also dealing with billions of years timescales for the age of the Milky Way galaxy. So you might see some in Halo that left a long, long time ago, but you're right in that we probably would only see a handful of them even today. We do only see a handful of them. There's only been, as of 2017, 20 detected hypervelocity stars in right. the Milky Way. Right. The thing is, though, they stand out quite a bit because they look completely different from their background, and they can end up in areas of the Milky Way that are otherwise devoid of star formation. So, in theory, once they get out of the galactic center, and they have to start there because that's where the supermassive black hole is, they're not that hard to detect. But the estimates say there are a thousand of them, and we've only found 20. Maybe it's a little higher now. So, there is some challenge still. There's also a set of predictions that there is a subset of hypervelocity stars that don't come from the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. That's the astrobite that I'm going to be bringing today. Oh, very exciting. <laughs> It sounds like we've at least seen a couple of these, and that I think is what each of you is going to be talking about later on. But how do we actually determine that an object is hypervelocity? So how do we generally get the speeds of these stars within the galaxy? Great question. As with almost everything else in astronomy, we need spectra. For local stars, we take a spectrum and we see how the emission lines have Doppler shifted due to its motion relative to ours along our line of sight as we're looking at it. Hmm. The first hypervelocity star discovered had a measured radial velocity of 853 plus or minus 12 kilometers per second. So that's an uncertainty of about 1%. Pretty good. And that means that we definitely know that it's escaping the galaxy at those velocities. And the most recent hypervelocity star that was discovered reported a radial velocity uncertainty of only 0.3%. Wow. Wow. Which is very impressive. Yeah, but... This all depends on the technical details of the spectrograph that was used to take the actual measurements. Mm. I seem to recall that Gaia DR2 actually led to the discovery of a lot of these objects. So I imagine that maybe the astrometry is really helpful, but to get to these really high precision measurements or these low uncertainties, you probably need the spectroscopy. Is that right? I guess the astrometry would give you the plane of the sky motion, whereas the spectroscopy would give you your line of sight motion, right? That's exactly right. And then you can combine those two estimates into a 3D model of the star's velocity. Quick question. What is astrometry, for those who may not know? Oh, <laughs> so astrometry is just measuring precisely the position of the star in the sky plane over time. So Gaia DR2 is really great for this. You can get the locations of stars to, in some cases micro arc seconds i want to say so it's really really high precision locations of these stars and so as you observe them over time then you can figure out how quickly they are moving across the skies you could actually create a video of the star in this way yeah when people talk about astronomy existing for tens of thousands of years in human civilization what they're really referring to is astrometry because back in the day what was done was charting out the locations of all the stars to as much detail as possible and there wasn't a lot of physical deduction of those objects being done at the time. And it's interesting that astrometry is still done. We still need to map out where everything is as accurately as possible. It seems like a little archaic, but it turns out with that data set, we can do some really incredible things like estimating hypervelocity stars, as we're going to be doing later in this episode. Absolutely. And finding exoplanets. And finding <laughs> exoplanets. <laughs> Anyways, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> So briefly, before we go into the main astrobytes today, I also wanted to make a quick shout out to another astrobyte that isn't about hypervelocity astronomical objects, but rather about hypervelocity spaceships. That is, 
There's this idea of a spaceship that might be sent to the most nearby star, Proxima Centauri, during our lifetimes. And this is something that I briefly mentioned one or two episodes ago, so I just wanted to... I wanted to point out that there's a whole afterbite on the topic by Layla Linky that we've included in the show notes. And so since it fits in with today's theme, I just wanted to briefly summarize what this project is. It's this idea called Breakthrough Starshot that was founded in 2016 by Yuri Milner, Stephen Hawking, and Mark Zuckerberg. Quite the motley crew. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Can you imagine those meetings? <laughs> yeah. So the idea of this project is that an array of enormous lasers would be used to propel one or more light sails, that is a type of very thin and reflective spacecraft accelerated by momentum from photons, to velocities of about 15 to 20% the speed of light. And that's necessary in order to reach Proxima Centauri within our lifetimes. So at that speed, it would take about 20 to 30 years to get to Proxima Centauri, which is a little over four light years away from Earth. And since the star is so far away, that also means that it would take four years to return a signal to the Earth, stating that the spacecraft has safely arrived. So it would actually take quite a while where you know, oh, four years ago, the spacecraft landed and we actually don't know if it has arrived safely or not. Yeah, think of the time delay between the signals from the Perseverance rover as they were landing it on Mars and how difficult that was because the, what was it, six and a half minute delay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now if something goes wrong on Starshot, you find out about it four years later. Yeah. One PhD program later, approximately. <laughs> <laughs> Question for you, Milena. Uh-huh. Would it just be accelerated in the beginning to get it up to speed or would they keep accelerating it after it's well out of the solar system to get as fast as humanly possible? I think it would be pretty difficult for the lasers to actually reach that far. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, this is sort of like a a seedling of an idea. So it hasn't actually been fully worked out exactly how this would work. There are sort of ethical implications of building a laser that big and that yeah. powerful in the first place. But my sense is that they would just try to get it to this very, very high speed, and then it would just continue at that speed because there's not really much in space. Although mm-hmm. the really high speed does mean that Even if the spacecraft crashes into like a tiny bit of dust or anything, that's actually really perilous to a spacecraft that's moving at 20 to 30% the speed of light. And so it would probably be really severely damaged by any collisions with absolutely anything. By a hypervelocity collision. Yes, (laughs) a very, very hypervelocity collision. So the project would likely involve actually sending many tiny spacecraft under the assumption that not all of them are actually going to make it to the final destination. Interesting. Yeah. I'd imagine the benefit of sending tiny spacecraft would be also that we can't build a laser that's as powerful as the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. So we need something with a tiny bit of mass so that we can accelerate it up to those speeds. It's an interesting idea, but I wonder what science you could do with such a small spacecraft. Yeah, that's that's the question. How much can you actually put on? And there's actually been a lot of really fascinating science that has been accomplished with CubeSats. That's true. Which are tiny spacecraft, but they're still bigger than I think these spacecraft would be. So it's just a matter of how small can we go. The canonical CubeSat is, I think, 10 centimeters on a side. Mm -hmm. That's like the smallest possible CubeSat they make. And yeah, they do a lot of cool things with them. But generally, the constellation of CubeSats is the way to go. Right. So it kind of makes sense. And having this problem could produce quite a lot of creative solutions that would Mm -hmm. inspire science to the next level. Yeah. It's a great idea. It's just a little crazy. Yeah, it's really interesting. 
it's really crazy, but you know, if it works, then we would be able to learn so much from it. All right, well, <laughs> now that we've gotten a debrief on rapidly moving spacecraft, we're going to start <laughs> thinking a little bit bigger, starting with Alex's astrobite about hypervelocity stars. All right, I am indeed going to be talking about hypervelocity stars, but I'm also going to be talking about objects quite a bit bigger. And the astrobite that I brought lays it all out in its title Searching for Milky Way Intermediate Mass Black Holes with Hypervelocity Stars. And it's written by Catherine Menea, based on a paper by Fragione and Gualandris in 2019. We've mentioned intermediate mass black holes on and off in the show in previous episodes. They're the so-called missing link between small black holes around the mass of our sun and supermassive black holes at the center of our galaxies that can reach up to around a million times the mass of our sun. We think that they exist for a couple of reasons, one of the biggest being that they can explain how supermassive black holes could have formed so quickly. And there has been direct evidence for their existence in 2019, very recently, in the form of the gravitational wave signal GW190521. But aside from that, our understanding from them is mostly theoretical, and any new way that we can find to probe this unseen population would be an invaluable asset to this field. And this is where hypervelocity stars come in. Hypervelocity stars, this paper proposes, can be used to probe a population of intermediate mass black holes. But not just any intermediate mass black holes, those that are thought to exist inside globular clusters. So you look at the stars as evidence of the black holes that would have accelerated them to hypervelocity. Exactly right. And you infer the population okay. of black holes. So, globular clusters are a spherical collection of stars, all very tightly bound together and all orbiting each other, kind of like a swarm of bees. They're incredibly dense. They can reach as many as a thousand stars per cubic parsec. And for some context, near the sun, we have a density of around 0.1 star per cubic parsec. Thank you. I had no idea what right. <laughs> stars per cubic parsec you expect. <laughs> it's about 10,000 times denser at the center of a globular cluster than around our local neighborhood. Wow. They're incredibly old stars, and they all orbit a host galaxy. And the theory suggests that around 20% of all globular clusters may host intermediate mass black holes. But, as we said before, the globular clusters are too dense to observe the effects of the black holes on the orbiting stars within it without the best space-based telescopes that we have. But we're talking about hypervelocity stars, not normal globular cluster stars, right? So what do we learn from the hypervelocity stars as related to these globular clusters? Yeah, really great question. And to think about how we can use those to study the black holes, we have to return to the idea that we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode. And this is the Hills mechanism, which is when a binary stellar system gets close to a black hole, one gets sucked in, the other gets slingshotted out as a hypervelocity star. And the Hills mechanism was named after astronomer Jack Hills. It turns out if you look up Jack Hills online, you'll find that Jack Hills are also a range of hills in Midwest, Western Australia, best known as the source of the oldest material of terrestrial origin found to date. Yeah, that's where the Jack Hills zircons are, right? Where we figured out the age of the Earth. Exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> that's not the Jack Hills I'm talking about. <laughs> the Jack Hills I'm talking about developed the theory behind the Hills mechanism. And if the Hills mechanism also takes place in globular clusters orbiting our own Milky Way, then the hypervelocity stars that get thrown out can be used to infer properties about those intermediate mass black holes at the center of those globular clusters. 
To do this, the authors of this paper modeled a binary star system thrown at an intermediate mass black hole using an orbital integration code named Archain. So they just set up the system as they wanted it to be. Correct. They ran 5,000 trials for a number of systems differing in black hole mass, stellar mass, and stellar separation. Okay. And then they placed their subsequent results within each of the Milky Way's globular clusters to include physical effects like the Milky Way's gravitational influence on the ejected star's trajectory at each location. So this is a theoretical study then, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Because I would think there would be degeneracies between the impact parameter of the incoming star and the mass of the black hole. So I guess I'm just wondering like, how you would be able to tell. Maybe you could backtrack from the hypervelocity star's trajectory and say it looks like it came from the direction of this globular cluster for example is Ex- that what they're exactly do? yeah and that's that's what they're proposing in future studies they say if you look at the population of hypervelocity stars as has been seen from surveys like gaia and you trace their trajectories in reverse you can estimate where they came from and some of them might not have come from the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. The problem with this is that you need really good astrometry and really good velocity estimates to be able to do this accurately. But Gaia has the best astrometry. Yes, and this study has actually not been done. This is more for future work to see whether or not you could trace it back to one of the Milky Way globular clusters. Okay. You mentioned that you need the absolute best of instrumentation to do this, but does current instrumentation actually have the precision that you would need, or are you talking like future generations of instruments? Yeah, also a really great question. So the authors of this study took all of their runs, and they found a subset of hypervelocity stars in parameter space that they think would uniquely identify them as coming from Milky Way-associated globular clusters. So their velocities and their locations relative to the Milky Way would identify them as being different from the population coming from the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. They say that once you identify this subset in data sets like with Gaia, you can then propagate backward their trajectory, find out where they came from, find the most likely globular cluster associated with them, and then study over time this globular cluster with something like James Webb in order to track out the positions of all the stars within that cluster to extreme accuracy. So it's very ambitious, but just within this study, they tried to create a parameter subset where they say, okay, if you see these types of objects within our data, those are probably the subset of objects you want to look at with JWST. I see. Okay, I'm getting a little closer to understanding this. Let me just see if I can get it. (laughs) Sure. What you're saying is in their simulations, They identified traits like the spectra you'd expect, the speed, location. Is that what you mean? Correct. And if you saw those things, it would mean you should investigate this globular cluster because of those features observed? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. The velocities and the positions of stars thrown out from globular clusters around the Milky Way seem to be different enough from the population of hypervelocity stars thrown out from the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy that we can identify that subset and then follow them up. But the majority of hypervelocity stars don't fall in that category. That is a very good question, and it's something that we don't have a good answer to right now. Okay. It's something that they tried to constrain in this paper, is how many you would expect to come from all these different populations, like from supernova ejecta, 
from the supermassive black hole, from globular clusters, and error bars on all of these estimates are pretty large. So right now we don't have a good understanding of whether you'd expect to see more globular cluster type hypervelocity stars or any of these other types. Okay. It's a very interesting and creative approach with a lot of ramifications for future work, and I like that. Definitely. Yeah, I love that they're they're reaching big, almost like Project Starshot. They're definitely <laughs> ambitious in the methods, but they're keeping an eye on future surveys that could potentially place better constraints on this population. On the flip side, it can be dangerous to do work like this because it's possible that James Webb can't make the observations that they need. And we need to wait, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years to be able to get there, in which case it's sort of a bummer. Right. This is a study that probably shouldn't be done by a grad student. Because it'll take too long. Exactly. And if they're staking their early career on these results, then you might be out of luck. But somebody establishing their career can maybe move on to more speculative projects like this. Interesting. Thank you, Alex, for this awesome astrobite. I hadn't really thought too much about the theory of specifically hypervelocity stars that don't come from the center of the Milky Way, which is more of the framework that I'm used to hearing right. about. So it was right. really interesting to hear. Absolutely. You got it. Awesome. So if you guys thought that hypervelocity stars were big compared to the Breakthrough Starshot spacecraft, just wait until you hear Will's astrobite that's coming <laughs> up next. <laughs> so Will, can you take it away? Sure. The astrobite I'm presenting is called Three Bodies and You're Out, Ejecting the First <laughs> Known Hypervelocity Globular Cluster by Graham Doskoch. So now we're talking about the whole globular cluster as hypervelocity itself. Wow. It's a pretty crazy discovery. And this was done by Caldwell and others in 2014. So the paper is a little bit on the older side. The astrobite is new, but that's actually interesting. We can talk about what's happened since then. So you're saying every star in the globular cluster is moving at hypervelocities? Yes. And if it had an intermediate mass black hole at its center, it would also be moving at hypervelocities? That's the theory. Jeez. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> the authors of this paper were looking at the Virgo cluster. The Virgo cluster is a massive grouping of galaxies, sort of in the vicinity of the local group, which is our nearby collection of galaxies, and both are part of the Virgo supercluster. The Virgo cluster is much bigger than the local group, and we really can't see individual stars in the Virgo cluster. Mostly we just see galaxies, globular clusters, and occasionally single really, really bright stars. But with the best telescopes, you can see globular clusters fairly well. And the authors were using the Keck telescopes in Hawaii and the Multiple Mirror Telescope in Arizona, both of which are some of the biggest and most powerful telescopes on the planet. And they, of course, took spectra. They were using the specific spectra of these objects to see how fast they're moving. On average, the Virgo cluster is moving away from the Milky Way at around 1,000 kilometers per second. So we'd expect, on average, objects to be moving away from us at that speed with some distribution, right? Some are going to be a little bit less, some a little bit more. What they found was a globular cluster in the galaxy M87 is actually moving toward us at a speed of 1,000 kilometers per second. Wow. So Virgo mm. cluster is moving away at 1,000. This globular cluster is moving toward us at 1,000. That's a 2,000 difference in the cluster. And actually, M87 is moving a little bit faster away from us than the, the Virgo cluster. So this thing is moving 2,300 kilometers per second wow. faster Jeez. than the galaxy that hosts it. And it may not even be hosted in the galaxy anymore. It might have completely left the galaxy by now. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, can we figure out how close it is to us versus the center of the galaxy so that we know? Has it been ejected already? We don't know. It might have been ejected. It almost certainly has been ejected from the galaxy. It might have been ejected from the whole cluster, too. So it's really unclear. It's also incredible to me that this whole thing is moving as a cohesive unit, right? That the globular cluster wasn't torn apart as it was whipped around by potentially a supermassive black hole. But maybe that's just a testament to how densely packed these globular clusters are. I think in a way it is. But the authors say that almost certainly some number of the stars were lost when it got accelerated to hypervelocity. And that maybe the outer layers were stripped and became bound onto the supermassive black hole that it interacted with. And then the core of the globular cluster was the only thing that's left because it is on the smaller side for a globular cluster. Interesting. So you could potentially have like a tidal disruption event associated with one of these hills mechanisms for shooting out a globular cluster. Absolutely, you could. Right. Weird. But before they knew that this was a hypervelocity globular cluster, they had other ideas of what it might be and had to sort of eliminate those possibilities. At first, they thought maybe it's a foreground object in the Milky Way. And they, you know, did their due diligence on that and found that if it was, it would be headed toward the center of the galaxy, which is really unlikely for a hypervelocity object in the Milky Way. They come from the center, not toward it. Even if it came from another globular cluster or something like that, Alex, as you say, Mm -hmm. it's still unlikely it would be going toward the galactic center. So that's not what it was. It would be even more exciting, but it seems unlikely. (laughs) (laughs) It, it, It would be exciting, but unlikely. So they can throw that one out. They also thought maybe that you have enough objects, maybe the distribution of objects means that some will naturally be this fast, not from interacting with a black hole, but just from interacting with stars in a galaxy. And so they looked at the distribution of all of the globular clusters, the galaxies, and individual stars they could see in the Virgo cluster. This would be a seven sigma outlier. So you don't really get that. There aren't enough where you'd expect to have a seven sigma outlier. So it's not that. It's not just from the distribution of stars. They also looked at maybe something called an interaction between the globular cluster and a sub-halo of dark matter. So sort of a dense clump of dark matter. This is very speculative. People don't really have a good understanding of what this is, but they did a little bit of a back-of-the-envelope calculation and found that it wouldn't be able to get this fast. And even if it could get this fast, it would then slow down again. And the likelihood that they would observe it in that perfect window is too small. So they rejected that. They actually had one more interesting idea to rule out. Maybe it could be a hyper-compact stellar system with its own supermassive black hole. So Alex, that was your idea. Different than a globular cluster, a hyper-compact stellar system, it sounds pretty similar to me. But (laughs) I guess the difference is one has a supermassive black hole. It's sort of a mini galaxy and the other doesn't. Hmm. So you're saying it would be something more like a dwarf galaxy than a globular cluster really really small dwarf galaxy and very compact right but actually the detections of the amount of metal in the globular cluster is off from what you'd expect from that circumstance if it did have its own supermassive black hole you'd expect it to be metal rich and it was actually found to be metal poor so they throw that out and they're left with the conclusion that it's a globular cluster that was accelerated by an encounter with a supermassive black hole. But as we said, yeah, it's not enough. You actually need a third interaction Mm -hmm. to get this thing out. So they suspect that M87 might have a supermassive black hole binary that this thing interacted with. That's how crazy it gets. Wow. 
Okay, so you have a globular cluster. <laughs> it's just chilling. It's, you know, yeah, orbiting. Doing its thing. Well, like it does. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Of course. It falls into almost the binary supermassive black hole, the center of M87. A bunch of its stars get knocked out, and then it goes flying and leaves the galaxy? It leaves the galaxy and the cluster of galaxies, yeah. Wow. Is That's it, so crazy. It's crazy. Is it also... I mean, surely they looked at all these different scenarios, so it's probably not likely, but I'm thinking if we're just scaling up from the Hills mechanism from single stars... There you had a binary and one of them fell in. Mm -hmm. Could you not have potentially two tightly bound globular clusters that were in some way associated with each other? And one of them got sucked into the black hole and the other got slingshotted out. And then you wouldn't have to invoke two black holes at the very center of the galaxy. I don't know which is crazier. Two separate compact globular clusters interacting with a supermassive black hole or one globular cluster interacting with a supermassive black hole binary. But they didn't discuss that. So I don't know. If the two central black holes are really close together and in-spiraling, would we expect to see a gravitational wave from it at some point? I guess it'd probably take longer than, like, the next 50 years. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to take a long time. But indeed, they're going to be really close. These two black holes would have to be separated by a few light years, which is sort of on the cusp of the point where they're going to really accelerate and infall. But we're still talking, I don't know, but it's probably way, way more than 50 years. Mm-hmm. super cool though i had no idea that you could just have globular clusters free floating without galaxies so Same. pretty cool that there's actual evidence for that there is i mean there are some issues with this which is that no one knows if m87 is a binary supermassive black hole we don't know if it's actually possible for this to work dynamically this was not a modeling paper this was an observational paper and there has not been in the seven years since this paper's come out another detection of anything like this There have been some efforts to predict if, say, the Event Horizon Telescope could detect it or what sort of interactions of supermassive black holes could create the right conditions for this. But we're still very early in any efforts to understand it. It's tough to come up with conclusions with N equals 1. Right. I think it was a great, interesting detection. The work was very thorough. It's just extremely limited in what we can actually infer from it. Mm -hmm. But cool that N equals 1 exists at all. Way cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you guys thought I forgot, but I didn't. (laughs) It is, of course, time for the bi-weekly space sound of the unbound, rapidly slingshot and celestial superstars. (laughs) Superstar, wow. Oh yeah, this time they're superstars. (laughs) Alright, so I am going to play a clip and then I want you guys to let me know what you think it is. What do you think it is? I think I know what this is. Okay, then go ahead. I brought a space sound that was Perseverance making sounds as it made its way to Mars, and I previewed that we would very soon hear sounds on Mars from Perseverance. Is that what we're hearing? (laughs) 
<laughs> you got it. <laughs> this has definitely been in the news a fair bit, so I'm not too surprised that you had actually known what this was before it was played. I recognize that hum anyway. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't not play it after yeah. everything that's happened with Perseverance and all of the successes over the past week. So this is the sound of Perseverance on Mars, including the rover's self noise. So not all of that noise is directly from Mars, but you can sort of hear some of what is actually happening on Mars. There's also a version that filters out the rover self noise but it's really quiet which i guess is what you would expect because there's not a lot happening on mars (laughs) (laughs) so now we know that perseverance talks to itself (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess so i mean you can you can hear it it's it hasn't got a lot of other company on mars it's got ingenuity to keep it company that's true for a little while (laughs) is ingenuity anywhere near perseverance I think they're still attached for now. The flights for Ingenuity are supposed to occur in April, and then Ingenuity will be retired. It's a very short lifetime. Okay. Okay. Yeah, then it's got friends. Well, friend. <laughs> Singular friend. And it gets to talk to all the orbiters. <laughs> yeah, so Perseverance has friends. It's also constantly in communication with Earth, so it's good. <laughs> Ready to go to work. Yes. All right, that's what Perseverance sounds like. That's what Mars sounds like. So it's not really super related to hypervelocity things, but it's pretty timely for the current day. So figured it would probably be good to bring up while we are in this exciting moment. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for bringing that space time, Lauren. Yep, of course. So that brings us to our one-sentence summaries. Will, could you start us off? Absolutely. What could be cooler than a hypervelocity star? Well, a hypervelocity cluster of stars. That's one sentence, right? <laughs> That's a good summary. Thanks. I liked it. <laughs> I felt the energy. Alex, what's your summary? From our island galaxy, a hypervelocity star is a message in a bottle to the universe. But the bottle sent from our globular clusters might contain far richer stories. Wow. That was like poetry. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe we should do snaps. a Poet Slam episode. <laughs> <laughs> It could be pretty good. Let's take it one episode at a time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We've mentioned hypervelocity stars and globular clusters. We've even mentioned hypervelocity asteroids, which we didn't talk about in too much detail. But Mm -hmm. I was curious as to whether there are lone hypervelocity black holes, if there are other objects that we haven't mentioned. I would imagine there are, right? I couldn't see a problem with there being black holes wandering the universe And indeed, we do see gravitational lensing from black holes that are not in the center of galaxies. Or you could imagine they could end up out of a galaxy, but I wouldn't expect them to be super massive, maybe stellar-sized. Yeah, I would think the same thing. I think that the neutron star traveling at half the speed of light is really telling. And if you just bump up the mass of that progenitor star a little bit, you could, in theory, Mm. have an incredibly asymmetric explosion that collapses into a black hole and sends it shooting off in one direction. And we would just never see it. Right. Yeah, just tougher to detect. Right. Yeah, I was also thinking that interstellar objects might also potentially count as hypervelocity. I guess it depends on what their host population is, right? So the definition of hypervelocity objects is relative to what reservoir of objects they come from. Absolutely. And so it's not totally clear where the interstellar objects do come from. So I guess it's not obvious whether they're hypervelocity, but they aren't bound. I think by a good definition of hypervelocity, they would count. But generally, the term hypervelocity is not used for planetary systems. It's used for galactic Mm -hmm. systems. 
And it also seems that in the few papers I looked over, the use of hypervelocity is sort of a non-technical term. Right. Uh That's kind of confusing. I kind of wish there was just one very clear definition, but I guess a lot of definitions in astronomy end up sort of being cobbled together as we start to understand where the objects actually come from. That's right. And then we realize, oh, there are some inconsistencies, but historically it's been used. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. I think about the kind of observational bins implicit within the naming of like a nova, hypernova, supernova, kilonova. And all of those just correspond to different regimes in our observational signatures of those objects. They turned out to correspond to actual physical differences between the objects, but maybe these hypervelocity groups don't actually correspond to all some common physical phenomenon, but lots of different objects just moving quickly. Humans love to categorize and classify everything we see. It's a way we understand the world. It's a problem, right? It leads to prejudice that we group people without understanding them fully. But in astronomy and in science, it can lead to an oversimplification when you have two groups of things and one thing newly discovered doesn't fit in the groups. And really, we shouldn't have groups so much as a sliding scale, but that's hard for us conceptually. So, I mean, it remains a challenge on how words and concepts interact correctly. So don't judge a hypervelocity object by its cover. <laughs> the, the takeaway. <laughs> All right. And I can't resist asking this because I don't know, when I was trying to come up with discussion questions, I just had this really dumb question that kept popping up in my head and I just can't resist. So if you were a hypervelocity star, how fast would you be? (laughs) If I could travel through the universe on unbound galactic orbits, I would want to go about as fast as I could. I like the half speed of light neutron star idea. I feel like I would be the opposite. I'd be the lower end of the hypervelocity stars because I would want to take my time and enjoy the view as I go. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say I'd be a slow one because I'd be like the lethargic grad student of the hypervelocity stars. All right. Well, with that, (laughs) that concludes episode 31, Hypervelocity Heavens. If you want to read the three astrobytes we talked about today and or the associated papers, check out the links in the show notes. And if you'd like to listen to more of our episodes, you can find them at astrosoundbites.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, FFmpeg, really anywhere. (laughs) You can get our episodes in so many places. We truly do have listeners who use FFmpeg. Please let me know how, because I would love to know. (laughs) So thank you for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Elena, what is FFmpeg? FFmpeg.